This Week, Baseball and the Origins of Sports Journalism. Pepperdine University professor Loretta Honeycutt on baseball during the Great Depression. Like I said, I want to say a little more about Dizzy Dean. He is one of the towering figures of this era. He was the pitching ace of the Gas House Gang. He won 30 games in 1934 with an ERA of 2.66, which is pretty good. Um, Really good, actually. One of his most famous sayings, it ain't bragging if you can back it up. More after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Um, For today, we'll be doing, again, our normal theme of baseball is American history. But... In specifically today, we're going to focus on what I've called the years of ballyhoo, or baseball during the Great Depression. And this will incorporate a lot of themes we've been developing throughout the semester. Um, you know, one of my mantras for this class is that everything you need to know about American history, you can learn by studying baseball. And we're going to see that in action today. Um, so let me start with some of the goals for this um, lecture today. Um, if we're looking at the age of ballyhoo in baseball, and I'm going to be explaining what ballyhoo means in just a little bit, if that's not a familiar word for you. We're going to start by examining some of the origins of sports journalism and other media, because that's going to be a key part of what's happening in sports during the Great Depression, the role of media. And there's going to be kind of a symbiotic relationship emerging during this time period between baseball and the media. We've already seen some of the origins of that earlier in the semester, but here it will kind of reach its pinnacle. And then... We're also going to know, hey, what were the effects of the Great Depression on baseball? After all, this was a tremendous event for the entire nation. How can we understand that event by looking at baseball? And then, of course, what is ballyhoo? Why did I choose that word to describe this era in baseball? And how does it really reflect baseball's response to the Great Depression? Then, of course, what role did baseball play in American culture during the Great Depression? Um, in general, as in keeping with the theme of this class, that you can learn everything you need to know about American history from baseball. And then finally, um, as kind of a final case study in this era, I think if there's anybody that really stands out in really representing baseball in the Great Depression, you could name a lot of people. After all, Babe Ruth is still around. You know, there's a lot going on. But certainly one of the figures that really dominates the sport is this guy, Larry McPhail. And I'm going to argue that he's kind of the pinnacle of ballyhoo in the Great Depression and casts a shadow on baseball after. Um, Now, to dive in. First, sports journalism. We've noted this a little bit along the way, that that one of the ways baseball became popular was when coverage, you know, by newspaper writers in particular. But I wanted to dive a little deeper into that, into that phenomenon and what's going on here. Because I don't think you can understand baseball or media without each other. And by this, I mean sports in general. Of course, we're going to specifically focus on baseball, but a lot of what I have to say would apply to a lot of sports. 
Now, one of the first papers to um, cover sports was called The Spirit of the Times. Um, and it was a weekly paper published in New York City in 1831. Um, and initially had a mostly upper class readership. That probably doesn't shock you too much. I mean, these are the people with the leisure time to actually read a newspaper. Um, it would have an average circulation of about 22,000 with a peak of about 40,000 subscribers, which, you know, in this era is a runaway bestseller. Now, it would cover a variety of sports activities. Um, everything from what was called angling or fishing to baseball, cricket, foot racing, fox hunting, you name it. I have a whole list there of all kinds of things that were addressed by this paper. So why am I bothering to tell you about this? Well, the real significance of this Spirit of the Times paper is that printing all sorts of numbers and statistics about baseball um, and, and other sports as well, which kind of gives you a sense that even early on, um, there was something about the numbers that attracted people. But more importantly, it was the way that you could translate watching the sport into print. If you could print the numbers, say, so-and-so got this many hits, then all of a sudden, wow. Um, people were more engaged with the sport, even if they couldn't be there to watch it. So that's why journalism was so significant in the growth of baseball. Now, you might remember I mentioned in the goals a little symbiotic relationship. It's also true that as um, journalists you know, needed copy to attract eyeballs to their newspaper, baseball turned out to be a really good path toward that. And so the two kind of grew up together. Now, um, I will note, you know, the Spirit of the Times, one of the reasons I'm mentioning it is it's one of the first to cover any kind of sports. Now, you might remember this, you know, now, weeks and weeks ago when we talked about this, they still took what I would call the sporting approach, which is when sporting had kind of a different meaning than it does now, which had more to do with ideas about um, what manly men did. You know, it was all about masculinity um, and proving that. Now, we've connected baseball to that quite a bit. But in other words, this was more like, you know, these young upcoming men, you know, who were engaging in all kinds of aggressive activities to prove how strong they were. It'll be a little bit different approach later when we see the coverage of sports. Now, um, I thought I'd share with you a cool image from one of the, from the Spirit of the Times, 1857. This is one of the first images ever of a baseball game. And so you see, we're, we're kind of indebted to journalism for some of the earliest images, even of the sport itself. Now, um, another paper worth mentioning. I'm, not, I'm only going to mention a handful of these. We're not going to cover all the possible ones, just a handful. But one more worthy of mentioning is the New York Clipper. This one would um, be you know, an important publication from about 1853 to 1924. Um, it was also just known as the Clipper. And it, too, was a weekly in New York City. Remember, we're not too shocked by this. It's also true, of course, that urbanization is a major foundation for um, the growth of baseball and of journalism. And so since New York City is one of the quickest urbanizing cities in the Times, no surprise, a lot of this is happening there. This, too, this was the first newspaper to ever cover only entertainment. You know, um, now remember that we, we talked about how for a long time leisure time was not something that was admired or you know, something you were supposed to be engaged in. If you were a good middle class worker, you were supposed to be, um, oh, do we need it closer? Oh, there, thank you. 
Awesome. Okay. Uh, so the reason why entertainment was such a big issue is because if you were a good middle class worker, you're supposed to be working hard. You're not supposed to be goofing off during your um, off hours, right? You're supposed to be earning money, working your way up the corporate ladder. Remember, we talked about baseball as being the distraction from that because there wasn't this acceptance of leisure time yet. But the growth of the sport kind of grew with that acceptance of leisure time. And we see that in the pages of the New York Clipper. Now, um, one key thing to draw in here. Note, here's this figure, Henry Chadwick. We talked about him a little bit before. I'll bring him up again because he's important here too. Note his nickname, the father of baseball. Talked about that before. But what's really interesting about that, he's called the father of baseball, but he never played the sport much right? So how does that work? Well, that's because he's the guy who did things like perfect the box score, publish it in a newspaper, use a newspaper to cover baseball, bring attention to it. So it's kind of ironic that the guy we call the father of baseball was actually a journalist. So I think that supports what I'm trying to tell you, that there was such an interconnection between sports and journalism that will have some really important effects by the time we get to the Great Depression. Now, um, as I kind of alluded to, the Clipper played this key role in popularizing um, baseball, among other activities, of course. They also covered things like circuses, you know, dance, um, football. Oh, and there's a comma missing there. Football, not football music, but football and music. Um, the outdoors, you know, theater, all kinds of entertainment. Um, and it, too, had a circulation of about 25,000. So we're talking, you know, many people were reading this. Um, and by 1894, it has switched entirely to that entertainment mode. Um, interestingly, for those of you who have any interest in um, current entertainment, by 1924, the New York Clipper merges in with the journal Variety, which is still around today, publishes important things about entertainment. Now, um, let me talk more specifically about baseball journalism. So we got a few, you know, we had a few precursors. We had the New York Clipper, we had the Spirit of the Times, but one, among the key publications related to baseball was one called the Sporting News, um, which emerges in 1886. Of course, now we're in a new era in baseball, right? Post-Civil War, the sport has become quite popular, becoming quite a force in American culture. And the Sporting News would publish so much information about baseball that many began to call it the Bible of baseball. Um, that you could not be in the know about the sport unless you were reading the Sporting News. It was founded by a gentleman named Alfred Spink. And he was originally a director of the St. Louis Browns, so he emerges from baseball, the sport, but had also had a previous career as a journalist writing for a newspaper called the Missouri Republican. So in other words, he, he's kind of bridging the two worlds that he had experience in. Um, but things really take a turn when he hires his brother, Charles Spink, in 1887. That's because Charles became one of the most effective sports journalists, you know, in the history of the profession. Um, one of the things he did was um, to help boost circulation with a sample copy campaign. He's one of the first to say, hey, here, everybody try it out. And people would read it. Like, oh, that's great. Little advertising gimmick there that he engaged in to raise the circulation of the paper. And so he increased it from 40,000 in October of 1887 to just a few months later, you know, 56, over 56,000 pretty big increase in a short period of time and it only continued after um and they had so many requests for advertising pour into the sporting news that they had to expand the paper five times in one year and it grew from eight pages to 12 pages and so you see here that the growing maturity of the sport that not only is it now a game you play um or a game you go watch played in a stadium 
It's also now a media business, you know, where those who are covering it as journalists also can make a career. Now, this had a huge impact on the sport, too. Um, for instance, it was the um, Sporting News that broke the story about the players' revolt and backed the new players' league. Um, you'll remember this was the revolt against things like the reserve clause, where p- players felt like they were not able to exercise enough autonomy over their own you know, salary negotiations, over their own you know, where they would play, um, whom they would play for, and other conditions of their work. Players had very little power, and they attempted to revolt, and the sporting news backed them. They would also back the American League as a competitor to the National League. So here they're weighing in on some really big issues in the development of the sport. Now, it's also interesting, one of the later editors, Joe Flanner, would actually draft the National Agreement, which was basically the peace pact between the American League and the National League that created Major League Baseball today. So in other words, this sporting news was such a key part you know, of the development of the sport itself. Now... It was called the Sporting News, but by 1900, it basically covered only baseball. Um, And if you were a serious sports fan, this is what you read. Um, And it covered the sport all over the nation. And so it allowed, even if you lived in one area, you could still follow your favorite team, you know, in another area entirely. And the reason why is because each week it provided box scores for every baseball game played in the major leagues and numerous minor leagues. And so hence that Bible of baseball thing just provided all the data you needed. It also printed a weekly report on each major league baseball team. And that was usually written by kind of the local beat reporter on that baseball team. So they incorporated this whole network of agents and writers Um, And really originated, I mean, I I think today this is still around. I mean, well, I know my husband, who's a diehard Dodger fan, got me into baseball, still reads the LA Times every morning to find out what's going on with the Dodgers, which luckily after last night was really good stuff. But um, this is really the growth of the sport, a a whole other arm of it, advancing into journalism. So the significance here, what I want you to take away from this is that basically journalism and sports were often intertwined. And that's no different today. Um, You think of today's relationship between sports teams and media and broadcasting, lots of money involved. Every major league team, you know, sometimes has like billions of dollars worth of contracts with media companies, key part of the revenue. And so that originates well over 100 years ago. All right, so a little bit more about, we're going to wrap up on sports journalism a little bit, but I want to say a little bit more about it. Al Spink's son, Taylor Spink, would also have his own role to play in the evolution of sports journalism. Um, And he just kind of cranks it into overdrive, basically. This is the guy who um, works seven days a week, um, six nights a week. I guess he took one night off per week. Um, He was contacting his correspondents who were providing him with data about baseball games all over the nation. He's contacting them all hours of the day. Um, Now... This guy, of course, he, he's um, running the paper in the 1940s. And so he's now got access to telephone, telegraph, and his monthly bills ran $1,400. Now, even today, that seems a little excessive, but then it was really excessive. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Uh, and he even, he had in total 250 correspondents that he was communicating with to provide the coverage. Um, he, he would send out thousand word telegrams, even calling them at 4 a.m. Just to give you a sense of what was happening here. He too continued the growth of the paper, um, distributed copies overseas to American forces in Europe during World War I. The American League, and then convinced the American League to buy actually 150,000 subscriptions for the troops overseas. And the, um, and before the war, they only had 75,000 subscriptions. So this was a huge increase in the distribution of the paper. So it kind of taps into now the war effort over the First World War. Like, oh, we got to support our soldiers by sending them the sporting news so they can keep track of baseball still. And it just kind of shows you the connections now between baseball and American identity. Well, um, his impact on baseball, too. Uh, I'll say more about the All-Star Game in a little bit, but I wanted to throw in here. He would collaborate with the sponsors of the first All-Star Game in 1933, and that was the um, Chicago Tribune, to pull the fans for the starting lineup. So from the beginning, the All-Star Game was entwined with journalism. They were the ones that pulled the fans for the starting lineups. Um, He was also initially one of those who rejected night baseball but came to support it. So here we we see these um, sports journalists weighing in a number of issues. And, of course, during World War II, um, the problem was there's not a lot of baseball happening um, because of many of the soldiers um, leaving baseball to go fight in the war. So they do kind of have to add in a few other sports to cover, and it helps sustain the circulation of the paper, too, and baseball's off months, because that was the problem they had, is, hey, it's all good if you cover only baseball when it's going on, but the other part of the year when it's not going on, what do you do? So eventually they do start covering other sports. Eventually, um, the Spink family sells Sporting News to Times Mirror in the late 1970s. Um, But of course, as you probably, if you've studied journalism at all, you know, the rise of kind of national sports media in the 1980s, like USA Today, ESPN, and all those, and even other comprehensive websites run by the major sports leagues by the 1990s, that all weakens the dominance of the Sporting News. It doesn't last forever. Um, And now it's basically available online. And, of course, the success of television was another problem because now people could watch games. They couldn't only read about it. So a lot of things have changed. Now, one other way, though, that we see the impact of media on um, baseball is um, in radio. And what's interesting here is um, the owners initially reject um, the idea of broadcasting games on the radio. So you had coverage in newspapers, but why not radio? Well, and why would the owners initially reject that idea? Of course, many of you could probably figure it out. They're afraid nobody shows up to the ballpark if you broadcast the games on the radio. So um, initially, not a lot of owners 
accepting that possibility. But you have your first radio broadcast in Pittsburgh in 1921, and it's pretty quickly followed by the um, giant Yankees World Series being broadcast in 1921. It was the first time people all over the country could experience the same baseball game at the same time. But the greatest growth of radio would be in the 1930s, hence me throwing this in with the Great Depression. Radio was essentially one way to attend games for free. And I'll say more about the Depression in a little bit and set up why this was so important, but you can well imagine. So many people lost their jobs, the economy... Um, is in a sense of crisis for a whole host of reasons. And so the idea that you could attend a game for free, you know, on the radio, really reflected the Depression-era economy and really explains its popularity. And in fact, by 1939, all, the major, all of Major League teams broadcast their games, particularly once they figured out that they could get paid for the right to do so. They could offer the right to broadcast the game to a radio station in exchange for a contract payment. And that seemed to make it work for everybody. And what they learned then was that essentially broadcasting games on the radio helped popularize Major League Baseball teams, even among fans who did not attend games. So in other words, you had a broader reach now. You didn't only reach the fans that attended the games or even only the fans who read the newspaper. Now you're reaching fans who might listen to the sport on the radio. So certainly what's happening here is, first of all, the growing importance of media in American culture, but also the sense of a shared national culture. That now, even if you lived in another city than a team you really enjoyed, you could perhaps catch the radio broadcast of your favorite team. And one of the first um, baseball broadcasters was this gentleman, Harold Arlen. Um, But there would be many more. Um, Now... Most of what I've said so far would be true of most media, but I wanted to hone in on a particular group whose circumstances were sometimes unique and are worthy of study as well, and that is the experience of black journalists and baseball. And I start with this theme. Um, By the time you reach the late 19th and even into the 20th century, one of the key themes in um, black history certainly is the goal of racial uplift. that, okay, slavery's over, there's a new era of freedom, but of course there remains, you know, a a significant amount of white racism, um, exclusion, segregation, Jim Crow laws. And so in many black communities, the argument was, hey, let's not do anything to further justify any kind of white animosity against African Americans. And they called that racial uplift, do everything we can to uplift the race. And one of the forces in this was journalism, in particular a paper called the New York Age. Again, we're back to New York City, you know, which is the center of baseball, in some ways the center of journalism. And um, one key editor of that publication was this gentleman, Lester Walton, um, especially in the early 19-teens. And essentially, much like Henry Chadwick had popularized baseball among kind of middle-class Americans... Lester Walton would do the same for the Negro Leagues among African Americans um, by essentially covering the sport in the pages of his newspaper and realizing its significance in building community for African Americans. Now, I will say a couple other things about him that I can't resist mentioning because we're talking about him. He's a fascinating cultural figure for a whole lot of reasons. 
For instance, he's the one who started the movement in 1913. I mean, you might call it one of the first political correctness movements, although I don't really like that phrase, but I, that's what we're commonly, you know, we refer to it as. Um, he's the one who said that they should spell Negro, which was the common term for discussing African Americans at the time, with a capital N. You know, thereby making it, right, a, a designated people group. And he was successful in that. He got other journalists to do that, which was just kind of a small step toward equality. So journalism here playing so many roles. Um, so I asked, you know, why does he take that issue on? What's his overall goal? And the overall goal is, of course, the inclusion and recognition of the role of African Americans in American society. He would later on have a political career, too. Can't resist mentioning since we're talking about him. Worked for the Democratic National Committee, was a U.S. Um, ambassador to Liberia um, before and during World War II, served on the New York City Commissioner for Human Rights, um, particularly, or served as the New York City Commissioner for Human Rights, particularly on desegregating housing. Um, so I find it interesting that with all he's doing, right, all that he's suggesting, baseball's a part of that. He sees that as another key part of American culture that African Americans should embrace and that would benefit their community. Um, and I say, why don't we know more about him? You know, he, he worked behind the scenes. He didn't leave a lot of records. His race, you know, um, all have led us to know very little about Lester Walton, who, in fact, was, one, was a very important figure in American history in his time period. Now, um, another sports journalist worthy of mention. If you've seen the movie 42, he's a figure in that movie. We'll be watching that later in the semester, so you can look forward to that. But... Um, there was a journalist named Wendell Smith, and um, he grew up in Detroit. But let me tell you his backstory a little bit. He starts his career in baseball as a very talented pitcher. In fact, the Detroit Tigers were scouting him, wanted to sign him as early as 1933. But they could not due to the segregation policy in ma- Major League Baseball. That whole gentleman's agreement we talked about emerging in the 1880s where all the Major League teams agree not to um, sign any black players. So when he's essentially excluded from playing in the major leagues, he eventually turns to sports journalism instead. Works for one of the largest black newspapers in the United States, the Pittsburgh Courier. So far I've emphasized New York City papers, but I want to give some other cities their due. Pittsburgh Courier is one of them. And he's hired by them in 1937. And one of the things he does that was so important is he began kind of documenting the support among many Americans for, and among teams themselves to integrate black players into Major League Baseball. Um, And that has a role to play in the eventual decision of Branch Rickey, whom he worked with, to integrate the Dodgers, i.e. bring in Jackie Robinson. So here you have this sports journalist that would play a key role in one of the most important um, decisions in the history of Major League Baseball. So I guess what I'm arguing here is the Depression era of black journalism laid the foundation for the later integration of baseball, and one might argue at that point, then the integration of the entire nation. Okay. Um, one more figure to talk about. Um, or actually, two more, I think, and then we'll move on to our next topic. One other figure worthy of mentioning. So, so Wendell Smith was a print journalist, um, but... Sherman Jocko Maxwell, as he was better known, was one of the first radio announcers um, for the Negro Leagues. And, in fact, he's called the Jackie Robinson of sports broadcasting because he became the first um, African-American to broadcast baseball games. Now, in his journey to become a broadcaster, he was turned down 25 times. 
by a variety of radio stations. But finally, he got a very short spot on the um, white-owned WNJR, which is in New Jersey, got a five-minute spot by 1929. Later on, it would expand to 15 minutes that he was on the air. Um, During that spot, he interviewed a lot of sports celebrities. Uh, But by the 1930s and 40s, he started calling the games for the Negro League Newark Eagles and thereby becoming the first um, sports journalist. He also wrote stories for the Star-Ledger, you know, which, which um, published some of his commentary on baseball. That was pretty rare for a white-owned newspaper. He actually never got paid by the radio station for the work he did. But he did receive money from advertisers for plugging their products on the air. So kind of a fascinating story there. And um, many have described him as the most familiar baseball voice in African-American homes throughout North Jersey, you know, in this era. So in other words, you know, sports broadcasting wasn't just, you know, the white folks of the era. Now, um, one other sports shows, I could name so many, but this last one, I want to name one more, just to add a whole other dimension to what's happening here. His name was Fred Oshima. Um, And he's going to show us a whole other wing of sports journalism. And he was the sports writer for the San Francisco Nichibai Shimbun, which was an English-language weekly newspaper for Japanese-Americans and essentially covered, you know, Japanese-American baseball teams. That's what Fred Oshima did. He would later write, however, for a whole different newspaper, the El Joaquin, which was a newspaper published at the Stockton Assembly Center, one of those Japanese incarceration camps, right, during World War II. And then later, one called the Aurora Outpost at the internment camp in Arkansas. So in other words, after the internment of Japanese Americans, you remember, many of you may have studied this in your high school classes. We'll say a little bit more about it in a couple of weeks, where you have well over 100,000 Japanese Americans interned in camps in case they might be a danger. Um, he is covering baseball at these internment camps. And essentially what he was able to do was publicize the talent and ability of Asian American teams before and after World War II. So imagine that, even while you're incarcerated um, for no crime at all, really, he's covering baseball. And he did so because he claimed that baseball provided such a sense of community for marginalized groups such as Japanese Americans, especially in these internment camps. Um, We'll go into more detail on this in a couple of weeks when we focus on this issue in particular, but in internment camps, you had a whole variety of teams that played. You know, it was one way to spend your time, you know, in an internment camp when there was not much else to do. And so it's due to people like Fred Oshima that we have coverage of that. Now, I will note, before the internment camps, I'll say one more thing. Um, Another way that these, that baseball journalism and and baseball in general um, assisted Um, in developing that community was that that attendees at baseball games in the 1930s, um, they handed out flyers organizing boycotts against businesses that would not hire Asian Americans during the Great Depression. And so you had a lot of businesses that when the Great Depression hit, you know, they targeted foreigners, immigrants, and others would not hire them. And so at baseball games was sometimes where they tried to develop a sense of community. Let's boycott those businesses that are doing that. Let's not buy things from them if they won't hire workers from our community. 
Okay. Now, I want to now delve into the Great Depression in particular um, uh, to talk about its impact on baseball. So we're going to transition from looking only at journalism and now look more specifically at the Great Depression. And I started just with a little basic introduction so we know what we're talking about. I love this image, uh, the, what it conveys about what happened during the Great Depression. Um, the, in terms of the effect on the country, and I'm not going to go into all the details and causes and whatnot. Um, ugh, my economist hat is not very strong. But what I can tell you is the, um, we basically experience a much lower gross national product, right? Meaning the value of everything the U.S. produces collapses. And notice how this chart demonstrates that. You had a pretty good run in the 1920s. I mean, there was one bad year there, maybe a bad year or two, but generally it was going pretty well. Where, and this is the, the chart, you know, this is the upside down, generally you're bouncing along pretty good, and then all of a sudden, oh my goodness, it goes off a cliff, right? Economic production virtually halts. This translates to extremely high unemployment, sometimes as high as 50 to 80% in the nation's cities, as high as 33% nationwide, sometimes even higher, really. What does that mean? Well, people have less disposable income, right? If you're unemployed, buying a baseball ticket gets harder. Um, even buying a newspaper subscription gets harder. And so this was a challenge for baseball. It was a challenge for the nation. It created this huge sense of crisis in the country. How are we going to surmount this tremendous economic challenge? So it provides us a really good opportunity to look at how baseball was reflecting this sense of crisis and these tremendous economic changes. Now, um, some of this has to do with journalism, so I'll say a little bit more. Um, in, in some ways, baseball was the escape from the dreariness of the Depression, right? And so if you could, you know, kind of like the movies were, that's another thing that's the same thing. You could analyze movies in the same way people went to the movies, kind of escape, you know, the awfulness of the Depression. Um, and so reading the newspaper about baseball, another way to escape. Professional teams relied on newspaper coverage and publicity to draw in fans, right? That's how we're going to get people into the seats. We get newspaper coverage. Ah, but look at this. The newspapers were relying on baseball coverage to sustain their readership. Um, in fact, we find that baseball, and in general sports coverage, made up as much as 30% of some newspapers. Um, that's what kept people buying the newspapers, the sports coverage. I guess maybe you weren't too interested in reading the news. It was kind of dreary. You know, not much good news there. But maybe baseball, a little more fun to read about. So a lot of newspapers really emphasize that. But in terms of... Um, the challenges in the Depression. Major League Baseball simply reflects what's going on in the broader country. 1930, highest ever attendance in Major League Baseball. Over 10 million. That had been the peak, highest ever. But by 1933, they only had 6 million. Let me just tell you, a 40% collapse in your revenue stream is very difficult to survive as a business. And baseball was struggling. Um, the financial losses were immense. Most teams lost money in the millions, which is a lot of money then, remember. Today, it's still a lot of money, but then, astronomical amount of money. So you see players' salaries are frozen, sometimes even slashed up to 50%. Um, like Babe Ruth's salary, here's a name you know, goes from $80,000 to $35,000. Um, rosters were reduced from 25 to 23 players. And so what we're seeing here is just how baseball is reflecting the reduction in the workforce generally, which would have all kinds of ramifications on the sport. 
All right. Well, okay, we know the dire situation. How does baseball respond? Well, I want to start with this concept of something called ballyhoo. Uh, and ballyhoo, and then I'll connect it to baseball here in a second. So bear with me while I define ballyhoo a little bit, and then we'll add it into understanding baseball in this area. Ballyhoo defines a clamoring and vigorous attempt to win customers or advance any cause, blatant advertising or publicity. Um, so it's, it's an aggressive attempt to get customers to, in, in today's media, you know, to get eyeballs on your web page um, or similar publicity um, that's somehow just kind of crazy. You know, it's, it's clamorous, it's vigorous, it's, it's in your face. It kind of originated in the circus industry, honestly. That makes sense to us, right? If you're, if you're familiar with the circus industry at all, you know, right? It's kind of loud. It's kind of in your face. Um, and Ballyhoo was the nickname for a sideshow that would attract attention. It's like anything you could do that would attract attention. This is why circuses, you know, would have the bearded lady and, you know, um, rely on all kinds of unusual looking people to draw in the fans. Well... The baseball wouldn't be the only one. I mean, there'd be all kinds of examples. Movies during this era begin to produce talkies, as they're called, right? Now, part of that was technological, but part of it was getting people back into the movie theaters. You've got to give them something they really, if they're not going to have much disposable income, how are you going to get them to spend their money? And now they shift from silent films, which had dominated in the 20s, to, of course, the films with sound. Um, talkies, as they were called in the 1930s. Eventually, even color films. There wouldn't be too many, but there'd be a few. If you've seen, like, Gone with the Wind, that's at the end of the decade. Another attempt to wow audiences, get them into the seats. Oh, another one that I love to talk about. Dance marathons was another popular one. Um, and this one I found really fascinating, but it's an example of the ballyhoo of the era. Um, you could get fans to come watch people dance for, like, hours and hours on end. Um, seeing who could be the last one to drop. Um, this was another kind of the crazy events that happened during the Depression as fundraisers. You know, for the people participating in the dance marathon, it was a chance to get a payday, you know, to make some money somehow. For the sponsors, it was about getting advertising, it was about getting people to buy tickets. But it just shows you kind of the crazy thing. We look at a dance marathon and I go, wow, that's pretty crazy. Um, okay, but what about baseball? What did baseball do that might qualify as ballyhoo and kind of really reflect the Great Depression? Well... They started out with a few kind of gimmicks, much of which probably sound pretty familiar today. I mean, I can't help but reflect on the fact that I happen to be, you know, living in Los Angeles area, big Dodger fans in our family. We know about all kinds of, like, special days at Dodger Stadium. There's a Star Wars day. You know, that's a popular one in my house. Um, all kinds of themed days. Um, and that's no different during the Great Depression. Or maybe that's really when it originated you had family nights, you know, town days where you invite people from a particular town, ladies' days. I mean, all kinds of gimmicks to, you know, target certain groups that you want to get into the seats, the baseball stadium. That's what they're using to sell tickets. That's the first kind of earliest emergence of some kind of ballyhoo in baseball. But other things they did. 1931, the MVP award first inaugurated. This is a Great Depression thing, part of that whole ballyhoo thing. And now, ironically, I will say it was chosen by baseball journalists. You know, they were the ones that voted on this. Um, but it was a way to keep attention on the sport, even in the off-season. So you're having to get a lot more creative about how you market the sport. Um, and the first All-Star game 
1933. I set a fundraiser for families of deceased players. It did eventually come to that, but some of them, I shouldn't say it was only deceased players. There were also just players who um, had retired, could no longer earn a living, and so their buddies got together and agreed to play in this all-star game to raise money for them. Very much reflective of the reality of the Great Depression. So even today's all-star game originated in the sense of crisis in the Great Depression. We need to raise money for... Um, people in the baseball community in need, um, but becomes this permanent tradition, kind of the long-term impact of the Depression on baseball. So these in- initial attempts by baseball to get fit players into the stands, you know, engaging in this ballyhoo effort, reflects kind of the trauma of the Depression, you know, the need for escapism, but also the impact the Depression had on American culture and business. Because it wasn't only baseball that did this, right? It's just fitting in with the broader culture. Movies, dance marathons, all of this. Now, um, Negro Leagues faced particular challenges during the Great Depression that are worthy of mention. Um, They were the hardest hit by the Great Depression. Um, African Americans, for instance, um, more rarely qualified for New Deal programs. Though I don't want to um, emphasize that too much because there were many ways in which New Deal programs will revolutionize black communities as well. Um, but still, there remained great need among black families, even more likely than white families. Part of that was due to the kind of last hired, first fired mentality in the Great Depression. You only hired black workers if you absolutely had to. In fact, traditional jobs that had once been dominated by black workers, these would mainly be your kind of manual labor type of jobs, um, street sweepers in the cities, doorman at hotels, those slowly but surely got taken over by white laborers. And so um, unemployment rates were higher among African Americans. This was reflected in the Negro Leagues. They had even more pressure to innovate than Major League Baseball did. In fact, they would actually adopt night baseball five years before Major League Baseball would. Um, In 1930, they would sleep on their buses to save lodging costs. and focused even more on entertaining fans even earlier than Major League Baseball did. One of the um, fun ones is a game called Shadow Ball. And this, this I would classify as kind of a ballyhoo thing. And the Negro Leagues perfected it. And Shadow Ball was an activity that many of the players would engage in prior to the game. Where they would essentially pantomime playing a baseball game. There'd be no ball, but they would pretend like there was one. You know, make great throws to each other, daring catches, all just kind of pretend, but as a way to entertain the crowd. Some have said it's kind of a metaphor for what was happening with the Negro Leagues, right? That they weren't really allowed the inclusion and um, respect that they deserved, even given their very high level of play. They also adopted an all-star game patterned after the Major League Baseball all-star game for similar reasons to raise funds to support players who needed it, especially retired players. Um, Now, other innovations during the Depression era. Um, And there are many. I think you might be a little bit surprised at how much the the sport changes during the Great Depression in ways that are still obvious today. Um... For instance, uh, let's talk about the farm system. That's the one I have highlighted here in the slide. That's one of the innovations that kind of peaks during the Great Depression. It has origins a little bit before that, but its main impact is during the Great Depression. And if you don't know what the farm system is, I know not all of you are huge baseball fans. I can explain that a little bit. 
Basically, the farm system refers to contracts that minor league teams have with the major leagues to share players. It, the goal is player development, right? Today, I think they have many levels, um, you know, rookie levels all the way up to AAA and then the major leagues, um, of course, after that. The key figure who developed this system was a guy named Branch Rickey, um, who, of course, key figure in 20th century baseball anyway, um, but he first did it with the Cardinals, whom he was with from 1916 to 1943. It kind of peaks in 1934. I'm going to say more about that 1934 season. It's an important one in baseball history, but um, the St. Louis Cardinals had a very dominant World Series win that year. So the way it worked is, under Ricky's leadership, the St. Louis Cardinals began buying minor league teams and kind of folded them in with the Cardinals organization. And through the reserve clause, you know, now you create contracts with minor league players through the reserve clause, or including the reserve clause, they would eventually control up to 30 teams. And, of course, that allowed you to, to um, if you saw really good talent in one of your teams, you could bring them on up to the major league, and they weren't allowed to leave that team to go to another one. They were still owned by you. And so it greatly expanded the talent pool. Um, for um, the St. Louis Cardinals. And it basically prevented other wealthy teams from stealing away your best players as you were developing them. Still a key part of baseball today. And the Cardinals are the first ones to achieve success with that system. From 1926 to 1946, they won nine National League pennants and six World Series championships. So does this look like a success for the Cardinals? Yes. Huge success. Um, but I would say it reflects a couple things, both the success of the farm system and the innovation of the Great Depression. You know, we're trying to figure things out here. How are we going to make this system work? And the farm system was part of that. This, this is, I, I, I like this picture. Um, here, here at the label there, this is from Look Magazine, and it's Branch Rickey, the father of the baseball farm system, as they call him, checks it with his um, 18 minor league teams on his office blackboard with his son, Branch Jr., so here's all the teams they've got, all the players they're managing. I mean, it took a lot to keep all that going. But boy, look at his success. I will say later, those who adopted the farm system, um, it's kind of the Cardinals first, and then it moves to the Dodgers, and then to the Yankees. And as it does, each of those teams experience a dominant time um, in the history of their team. All right, now... Um, I want to stick with the Cardinals for a little bit because not only was it that farm system that made the Cardinals so strong led to their tremendous appeal uh, in American baseball. So one particular part of that appeal was the existence of a group called the Gas House Gang. These guys are a super fun group. I love this picture of them. It kind of gives you a sense of how they were viewed. They were a group of St. Louis Cardinals players, particularly those in the 1934 season. Um, they, a, a, a gas house gang usually referred to a group of working class men that produced gas for heating and lighting homes. It was a smelly and dirty occupation. Um, but it came, this term gas house gang came to be applied to the Cardinals because they were kind of known for their dirty appearance and their rough and tumble tactics on the field. They were kind of aggressive players in kind of a goofy way. But the real question is, why do they become kind of the heroes of the Depression era? 
There were few more popular players than this group called the Gas House Gang. Well, in part, their working class image, can you imagine why that might be appealing during the Great Depression? You know, I mean, an era where everyone feels like almost is relegated to working class, where it seems like life is hard, and you can identify more with that kind of working class hero um, in some ways. And then also, this kind of dovetails with Saint Lu- the St. Louis Cardinals becoming kind of America's team in the first place. And among the reasons for that is even though the U.S. population had expanded tremendously, especially in the westward direction in the half century before the 1930s, um, still, and I think I'll move to the, ah, here we go. I, you know, I threw in a map here to show you why then would the you know, St. Louis Cardinals, pictured here on your map, there's going to be your St. Louis Cardinals. You know what? If I asked you what stood out about the St. Louis Cardinals, you'd probably say, oh, they are the westernmost team in baseball. So in other words, you're living in California, you don't have a team. You know, Arizona, Washington State, you don't have your own major league team. The closest one is St. Louis. And so being kind of the heart of the country, the westwardmost team, they became kind of America's team. And that dovetails with Branch Rickey's farm system where they create a lot of good players, this whole gas house gang image. And it just, the Cardinals become kind of the, you know, quintessential team of the Depression era. And this kind of peaks with this 1934 World Series. I love this image on the right about Cardinals versus Tigers 1934 World Series. Um, But it really does represent the Depression itself. Um, Much of Detroit's industry is shut down you know, during the Great Depression. So when it's, when the, you know, Tigers, Cardinals playing the Depression, they represent two beleaguered cities during the Great Depression, trying to make their way. St. Louis is suffering from, you know, low riverboat traffic, the collapse of the Midwestern farm economy. Um, But a couple key figures, you know, really entertained people during the 1934 Great um, World Series. One of them was Dizzy Dean. I'll say more about him in a little bit. Um, but he's the pitcher represented who he would have two victories during the World Series you know, that really helped the Cardinals win. Um, another fun one, there, they had one player named Ducky Medwick. I mean, how can you not love that name, right? Ducky Medwick. Um, he's the only player ever kicked out of a game by the commissioner of baseball. And this is because apparently, even though the Cardinals were winning, it was something like 9 to nothing or something or 11 to nothing. It was like they were way up. He still... Um, does this crazy, like, hard slide into um, third base, and it makes the fans angry, the Detroit fans angry, and they start throwing stuff at him. And the commissioner of baseball is just like, yeah, we better take him out of the game so nobody gets hurt. <laughs> it's the only time that ever happened. Oh, and one story I did want to tell about Dizzy Dean. During the World Series, this, there's just so many crazy stories that happen in this World Series, but one of them was, even when he was pitching in a game, um, he, he gets on base, and um, while running to second, is hit pretty hard in the head by a baseball, knocks him out. Um, and he has to be carried to the clubhouse, you know. And this, this is kind of the, the funny part of the story. I mean, that part wasn't good. He wakes up, apparently he was fine. Um, but later they took him to the hospital, and, and the, the funny headline that ran the next day was um, X-rays of Dizzy Dean's head show nothing. <laughs> that was like the big joke at the time, like there was nothing in his head. <laughs> Because he was known for being kind of a braggart and all that. Well, I'll say more about Dizzy Dean a little bit. I always love that story. X-rays of his head show nothing. It's a fun one. Now, um, other 
figures of the Gas House Gang that kind of reflect why the St. Louis Cardinals really connected during the Great Depression. One of them was Pepper Martin. Apparently, he, got his, he was one of the most popular of the Gas House Gang players. Nicknamed Pepper because he brought spice to the game, apparently. Um, came from a poor Oklahoma family. So that's so symbolic, right? Oklahoma, they experienced the Dust Bowl during the Great Depression, um, w- which had kind of destroyed much of the farmland. Um, and so it's kind of poetic that he comes from there. Um, many have said he's not the most natural talent, but played with complete abandon. Um, apparently well-known for his belly flop slides, um, his you know, aggressive style of play, and so he kind of represented the every man of the Depression era, right? Who just makes it work. Now, he was, in addition to being a really relatable sports hero, a pretty talented comedic entertainer. This was his band that he created, the Pepper Martin Band. I think that was pretty funny. They all used their baseballs. To, this is the kind of goofy stuff the Gas House Gang would do before their games. And so definitely reflecting the whole ballyhoo appeal of baseball in this era. Just everything crazy you know, to entertain people, to get attention. Um, Like I said, I want to say a little more about Dizzy Dean. He is one of the towering figures of this era. He was the pitching ace of the Gas House Gang. He won 30 games in 1934 with an ERA of 2.66, which is pretty good. Um, Really good, actually. One of his most famous sayings, it ain't bragging if you can back it up. Uh, I guess he... um, at the beginning of the season, said he and his brother Paul, who also pitched for the Cardinals, said, yeah, we're going to win 40 games this year. And everybody's like, yeah, right. Well, he won 30, and I think his brother won about 17, so they actually went way past that. Um, so really successful year from the Cardinals. And then, I can't help mentioning, he became a broadcaster later and was really famous for both his wit and his often really colorful butchering of the English language. Um, one of the things he was known for saying is, oh, he shouldn't ought to... Oh, how did he put it? He shouldn't have an auto swang. <laughs> something crazy like that. So something you could hardly understand. His grammar was so crazy. Um, but it made him very beloved by a number of baseball fans. And he would eventually do national broadcasts on some of the major networks. All right, here's the last one. This, I told you this is the pinnacle. Um, so here's where we can kind of pull it all together with these connections between baseball, the Great Depression, journalism... And that's in the figure of Larry McPhail. Um, and it's, it's hard to underestimate his impact on baseball, or overestimate, I meant overestimate, his impact on baseball. Um, he started out as a protege of Branch Rickey, but the two never really got along really well. McPhail wasn't one to take orders, and Rickey was one that really liked giving them. So I think that was a lot of the problem. Um, but he learned enough from Rickey to go on to have a number of achievements in baseball that really reflect this pinnacle of Ballyhoo. One of the first one was he was um, one of the first to begin using branding in Major League Baseball as a way to gain recognition for a team. Um, he did it first at the Cincinnati Reds, later for the Dodgers, even later than that for the Yankees. And this was one of the ways he was able to boost advertising because he became a recognizable symbol. So this, you guys recognize this one? You see this, you know. That was designed by Larry McPhail. Even the current Dodger signature logo, Larry McPhail. Same for the Cincinnati Reds, even their current logo, Larry McPhail. So he was a tremendous showman, tremendous businessman. You know, turning, he turned both the Cincinnati Reds and in the early part of the 30s 
and then the Dodgers in the later part of the 30s into money-making franchises, even during the Depression. Um, he was the first to do night games, which he does at Cincinnati's Crossley Field in 1935. Um, later, for... Um, the Dodgers and the Yankees, he does something similar, he implements night games. In fact, um, through using night baseball, the Dodgers drew the highest attendance in baseball by 1939. And that, that's when he kind of transitions to leading the Dodgers. But I would say the real, you know, one, one, if there was one event that showed the pinnacle of Ballyhoo, I like this one. Um, when he was first using the lights on Crosley Field in Cincinnati in 1935, the way he did it, I, here's a picture of him doing it. Check this out. He's standing there at the table light bulb on it, and um, hopefully I get all the details right. Basically, he set it up where Franklin Roosevelt, in the White House in Washington, D.C., you know, hundreds of miles away, pushes a button there that signaled to him to turn on the lights in the stadium. So isn't that, I mean, what more ballyhoo can you get, right? That you're going to get the president to turn on the lights at the stadium. You know, get the fans in there and say, look, there's this cool thing we're going to do. Um, but among the other things he did, he, like I said, he brought the farm system to the Dodgers, um, and set up weekly TV broadcasts in 1940 for the Dodgers. Not much of a coincidence that the Dodgers win the pennant for the National League in 1941 with all the innovations Larry McPhail brings. He was the first to charter a plane to, for team travel, of course, which um, allowed the players to arrive much more rested, you know, not spending the night on a bus. Um, now, not every idea that Larry McPhail had would work. One of the ones he wanted to innovate in uh, baseball was having a yellow ball. <laughs> that never took off. So not everything he did. But basically, how much of McPhail's innovations are hallmarks of the game today? The use of media, the use of branding and advertising, you know, getting fans into the stands with gimmicks like, hey, the president's going to turn on the lights at our stadium. Um, I think he casts a pretty big shadow. It just kind of illustrates in one person what Major League Baseball had to do during the Great Depression to survive, to make money, that actually became kind of popular, you know, through today. Many of these innovations. But hey, you've been great to listen to me talk this whole time. I want to offer an opportunity for anyone to ask questions. You know, be brave. Um, here's an opportunity for you. What's something that um, you want to ask for a little more detail or ask questions about? Any brave soul? Yeah, over there. You said that um, uh, Mick, Mac Fail brought the farm system to the Dodgers, but I thought that you said earlier that was mostly Branch Rickey. Well, yes, and let me clarify that, because I didn't clarify that very well. Yeah, um, so Branch Rickey was the one that innovated it, but McPhail came to the Dodgers in 1939, and then Rickey would come also in 1943. So I should say they both played a role, you know, in, in that um, innovating in the Dodgers. So it's kind of a both and for them. Probably first McPhail, but then later Ricky as well. Now, thanks for allowing me to clarify that a little bit because that was a little fuzzy. All right, other questions? All right, well, hey, you guys gave me great attention today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming today. Hope you had fun. And we'll see you next class. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. C-SPAN has a new podcast, Presidential Recordings. Season one looks at the presidency of Lyndon Johnson through his secretly recorded phone calls. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.